This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Alrighty, welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined, as I am every single Tuesday afternoon, by the dog walker fit himself, John Taylor of Fangraphs.com. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I I appreciate the new title. Mm -hmm. Um, Very much trying to get my fit on when I walk the dog. Right. I mean, but, you you put it out to the world. I I sometimes forget what you look like, John. You're very you're very. Hidden. I I also forget what I look like sometimes. That that happens to me. How is Fisher dealing with your your current dog walking fit? Is he is he on board? Does he want you to freshen up a little bit? Does he want you? Oh, to... he he loves it as long as he gets to go outside. That's all uh, he cares about. That's 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 thing. He he's he's not gonna he's not gonna give me too much guff about what I'm wearing. Besides, I'll just make him wear stuff, and that'll 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 learn him. See how much he likes pants. I uh, I'm I'm a pretty pretty avid dog walker these days, John. With the lady and, and uh, uh, she's a Keyshawn, and a lot of personality. This dog, John. Um, it's kind of like a bigger version of Fisher. And let me just say, this dog, it <laughs> when it decides the walk's over, the walk is over, John. And we'll just roll on her back, and it it it's just awkward when you're in a busy area and you're just like, this dog's done with the harness on and they'll pull the harness off and you're doing this whole thing. And I'm like, I, this is, this is too much. That That's the stuff you don't see on Instagram is when they, when they quit. Yeah. Fisher, at least like, I don't walk him far enough that he really ever has the need to quit, but there are definitely times where he's just like, oh, I'm fucking, I'm, I'm tired. We're not going any further. Yeah. I, I respect do all it. The work. I, respect I would it. respect it more if I didn't have to do work. <laughs> definitely. John, uh, what have you been, uh, what have you been reading? What have you been watching? What have you been up to since we last talked last Tuesday? You know, not a whole lot. Uh, watching and still watching a lot of the baseball. Uh, it's, it's been quite, I mean, th- this, things are getting back to normal here in New York. So I'm trying to get outside as much as possible. Just take advantage of the nice weather and things opening back up, you know? I saw it's going to be like 90 by the end of this weekend, Tennessee. We're back up to ninety. We're, we've moved on from spring. Spring is over. It seems like we're bringing we're bringing summer back, folks. <laughs> You're hearing about it more and more. I'm here for it, though. I'm here for it. Um, I got a black Iverson knockoff jersey that I'll oh, be wow. Okay. That I'll be rocking that a lot. As like he was my favorite player growing up. Him and Griffey were my my two dudes growing up. And um, yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. Uh, I never found an Andrew Jones throwback. I have the <laughs> no, it sounds like a good one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of yeah, I was gonna say well, you, you gotta get a you gotta get your Braves throwbacks. You gotta get a Steve Avery, mm. uh, a Terry Pendleton. Okay, maybe dig up a Mark Lemke somewhere if you have it floating around. Uh, Keith Lockhart, if you will. Keith Lockhart, that's a good one. Rock what about Carrie Lightenberg? Just 
See where Carrie Light. See what Carrie Lightenberg's up to these days. What always drove me nuts about him was how he spelled his last name. <clears throat> Do you remember what, how he Carrie spelled Lightenberg? Key. Oh, you said, you said last name. I said first name. I was like, what's wrong with Carrie? No, Lightenberg. It was a really weird spelling. Lichten, yeah, it was Lichtenberg. Yes. So I just spelled it wrong for him. And he also had this just ridiculous facial hair situation going on. Do you remember like the the little lines, like little lightning bolts coming out the side of his face? Vaguely, I didn't pay enough attention to the facial hair stylings of various middle and setup relievers throughout the 90s and 2000s. Well, I remember Mike Remlinger had a pretty nice goatee, like just a Ooh. really solid goatee. That is a deep cut. Mike Remlinger. You, we could use Mike Remlinger right now. We could use could, Kerry Lightenberger. Could, could you, though? Because you already got Josh Tomlin, and he's pretty much the modern-day Mike Remlinger. So. That's probably true. Um, I don't know, man. The Braves are just... <laughs> An absolute mess. And we'll we'll talk about some stuff, but with the Braves in just a second. But I think John, we have to start off with the New York Yankees. Stanton on the DL, IL, whichever you prefer. They are looking at a left handed bat. Is there anyone that makes a lot of sense to you for the Yankees to look at acquiring uh over the next few months? I mean I think profile. Well, I think a left-handed bat makes sense because that's a super righty-heavy lineup, especially with Aaron Hicks being down for what's probably going to be an extended period of time with a wrist injury and Brett Gardner. I mean, Brett Gardner is really the only other notable left-handed hitter in that lineup, unless there's someone I'm forgetting. There is not. Pretty much every major hitter in that lineup is right-handed. And I think they were probably hoping that a combination of Hicks and maybe Mike Ford and... um, I don't know who, and I guess Gardner would be able to do enough. But so, yeah, I, I, it definitely makes sense for them to get a left-handed hitter. The question is, where exactly are they going to get one? Uh, I think we've noted before that of the teams that are currently really out of it, out of it, I don't really know how many of them have assets that make any sense for anyone to pick up. I think if you are looking at left-handed hitters who are going to be available, the easiest and quite literally biggest target uh, would be Joey Gallo. If the rain, if the Rangers decide that they are moving on from him, um, obviously big left-handed power bat makes a lot of sense in for especially with the short porch in Yankee Stadium. Not, I mean, at this point, pretty much a league average hitter because he just is not capable of plate patience. It's just it is never going to happen for Joey Votto, and he just simply can't hit for average in part because he's because he has the strikeout problems and also because he's a dead pull left-handed hitter in the era of defensive shifts. So that's going to kind of screw him. And and on top of that, he's just not a particularly good defensive player. So and that's kind of an issue for a team for a team that already has Stanton. Even though again he is now on the injured list, so the DH spot is kind of full. And I I don't really know that you want Gallo taking time from Luke Voigt at first base. So finding playing time would be a weird fit. But I think he definitely makes the most sense for them of the bats available. He's only owed you know he's a whatever the prorated portion of six million some dollars is. He's got one more year of team control when he'll probably be worth closer to eight to ten. Obviously the Yankees can just non-tender him if they don't feel it's worth it. So it's it's a pretty I think it would be a pretty cheap get. I can't imagine Texas would probably get all that much back in prospects at this point, although he is pretty much the only thing they have left. Uh otherwise, I mean I don't know if you've seen any other teams around the league where you feel like there's the the team that I'm really interested in and they don't have the the left handed bat that I think the Yankees are looking for except for one potential exception, and that's the Twins, who might actually just be bad. Um, they're 13 games under 500, and they have looked miserable. And I don't think they're as necessarily as bad as they look, but they are also don't seem to be that good and are 
rapidly digging themselves too big a hole to get out of. And I think if there's one guy on that team, like, I mean, the only really left-handed hitter that would, I think would really make sense for the Yankees, given all their uh, positional issues, would be Max Kepler, who is still under contract rather cheaply for uh, two more years with a team option in 2024. So I don't, I don't really know that it makes sense for Minnesota to trade him. I mean, he's only under contract for about $15 million over the next two years. It's not really much of a savings. It, I think it's more unless they really just get bowled over by an offer. Or they really feel like carving out uh, outfield space once Alex Kirilov is back so that they can play Larnock and Kirilov on a regular basis. But they don't even need to get rid of Max Kepler to do that because they have Byron Buxton out for an extended period of time probably. Uh, other than that, though, I'm not really seeing any team that kind of jumps to the forefront in terms of like is going to have or currently would have a left-handed bat available. I think there's still plenty of time to figure that out, especially because as we, you know, as I noted before, like there aren't too many teams that are already out of it, out of it. And of those teams that are out of it, out of it, a lot of them don't really have much to offer. I guess if the Yankees feel like going cheaper than Joey Gallo, uh, maybe the Rockies could be persuaded to part with Charlie Blackman, who very much looks dead at this point. <laughs> He's always been a super Coors inflated hitter, so I, I don't really know that that's a chance you want to take. And also, it's just well, defensive mess at this point. So there's not a whole lot of upside to Charlie to Charlie Blackman at this point. The one positive I would say is that he's only under contract for one more – or this is his last season guaranteed contract. He's got – well, not true. He's got a player option for next year at $21 million that he's 99.9999999999% going to – actually, never mind. He has a player option for 2023 as well. How did the Rockies – why did they do this? Why – why do the rock? Why are the Rockies the way they are? Why would you give a guy thirty-one million dollars and two player options at the ages of thirty-five and thirty-six to keep him happy? I guess. What to keep him in there? What, I don't know. What is what? What is wrong? What was wrong with Jeff Bridich? What on earth? Anyway, I, I, <laughs> I can't. Okay, never forget Blackman. I, I can't imagine with with those two player options and the way he's produced that anyone's going to be interested in him. I think the Rockies are eventually just going to have to cut him on their own. But, yeah, I think Gallo, and especially with the rumors now, I, I remember seeing online that the Texas is thinking about shopping him. I think Gallo would be, the, would be the guy that makes the most sense and probably would be your most impact left-handed bat available on the market, barring something super weird. Yeah. Um, I guess the Nationals don't really have any. The Twins, man. Like, who before the season, if you had told us that, like, the Twins – would be behind the Detroit Tigers in the AL Central 40 games into the season. I just... Yeah, didn't, didn't see that one coming. I think it's over. I think it's just too much. Like, not even it's, the... What were the Nationals when they came back? What was the worst? Uh, 19 and 31. Yeah, so 12 games under. And this yeah. is 13, so they're right they're, there. <laughs> they're pretty much right there, and if you look at the playoff odds for Minnesota, they went from, I believe they were division favorites by about a game before the season, before the season started. Their playoff odds are down to 7%. Mm. Their projected win loss total is now down to seventy eight and eighty four. Um, that's really bad. They are projected to finish a solid twelve games behind the White Sox in the division. They're actually projected to finish behind Cleveland in the division right now, which is definitely not what you want to see if you're a Twins fan. I mean, that's what's happened to the Twins is a whole bigger conversation. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is injury, and a lot of it too is that I know. I think we talked about it over the off season. I don't think either of us really liked what that team did this winter. Mm -hmm. I I felt that they didn't really go far enough, that they didn't really add enough to a roster that could have used more help, particularly in the rotation and the bullpen. And already you're seeing that, that their rotation and bullpen have just not been particularly good. Um, 
but yeah, they they are in some really really serious trouble right now. Like they need to rip off a long winning streak sooner rather than later. But the other problem, they just need to get healthy, and that's just not happening. Speaking of not healthy, the Atlanta Braves. John yeah, Taylor. that's a problem for them too, isn't it? Oh, I guess in terms of other left-handed bats for the Yankees, just to wrap that up real quick, if the Nationals for some reason don't feel like keeping Kyle Schwarber around for a full season, but I I, I don't really see the Yankees making that minimum. I I can't see Schwarber having that impactful a move, especially because again he's a guy you have to park at DH. You know, you really don't want him in the outfield if you don't have to have him in the outfield. It'd be nice if Trey Mancini was a lefty. You move on. I mean, yeah, there there that's the thing. Like there are plenty of right-handed bats that should be available in the market. Obviously, Trevor Story will be there. I think yeah. if the Cubs are not contending, Chris Bryant will obviously be available. I think you know there are teams like maybe Cincinnati or Arizona or. Uh, if the Angels keep falling, that might, or like I said, Baltimore, that will probably have some guys, you know, that you, you could pick up cheaply. But yeah, in terms of left-handed impact hitters, it it really is Gallo right now. And so even if he even if he doesn't deserve that higher price, I think Texas, because there are obviously other teams are who need who need not just help from you know the left side of the play, but also outfield help. You look at Boston, you look at the White Sox, you look at I guess ostensibly Cleveland. Uh, Oakland could always use help, although they're they're they seem to be doing pretty well. Well, they seem to be doing. Okay. I mean, they're okay. They actually still have a negative run differential, which I don't particularly understand. Um, Milwaukee could use the offensive help, certainly. I think teams like San Francisco. Could, so yeah, there's there are a lot of teams I think that could be in the market for Gallo, but we'll see. But yeah, the uh, some injury. Huh. You know, uh, breaking his hand the way he did. I mean, just. Oh, Waskar. Yeah, like I, I, yeah, he's been the lone bright spot really outside of Acuna, who's not hit well of late. Um, this whole season, just <laughs> you talk about the Twins, they're kind of like the Twins of the NL, just not as not as severe, I would say, just with their offseason habits and what they're doing. And I don't know, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad juju right now around this this team and this organization and like Soroka having exploratory surgery on his Achilles in Green Bay this week. Um I don't know. That's two lost seasons for him. That's really bad. Yeah. Like I just I don't really know. There's not really a quick fix. And you look at the Mets if Francisco Lindor was actually hitting and you looked at some of this other stuff, it's like the Mets would be running away with this division, I think. And the Met, and the Met, the nice thing for the for the Braves and for the rest of the NL East is the Mets have their injury issues too. Like right. I, I think we've noted a few times, no team in the NL East actually seems to be all that good. Mm-hmm. They all just seem to be going through various portions of struggle. You know, the Mets have their injuries, the Braves have their injuries, the Phillies have their injuries and poor performance spots. The Marlins really can't hit. The Nationals are just kind of a mess. But I I I think it makes sense what you said about the Braves and the Twins kind of having those mirror off seasons because it's like you, you look at this Atlanta roster and a lot of what worked last year obviously isn't working. Travis Darno got hurt. Dansby Swanson took a step back. Marcelo Zuna has been playing very poorly. Christian Pache you know did not end up being. But but even guys like that even even in the, even in the just just to take Pache obviously he's he was a top position prospect in the system. You want to see what he's capable of. He seemed defensively at least good enough to be playing a full time regular role. But at the same time, like this is the problem you run into is that, you know, if he's not ready as a hitter and he very, very clearly is not ready as a hitter, you didn't there was no real backup plan here. It was mm-hmm. Ender and Ciarte, who is also hurt, and that's not really a good backup plan either. And luckily for the Braves, they have Guillermo Heredia hitting relatively well. But I mean this is a, this is a team that really did not 
add much in the I mean they added to the rotation but the two rotation the major rotation additions they made so far in Charlie Morton and Drew Smiley really have just not worked out and you know there, there's they're just it, it just felt like one of those things where it's like they they were relying more on a young core and on the superstar value of Acuna and just, I think that the idea there was just kind of well you know we were good enough last year with this core why can't we be good enough again and it's like mm-hmm. well because you there are definitely some issues there are definitely some issues you you ran into there. Like obviously, what we saw with the Braves last year was they just ran out of pitching, more or less. And for as much as I liked, and I said it at the time, I really liked signing Smiley. I really liked signing Morton. They're two very good pitchers. They're also not really guys you can count on in terms of durability, in terms of uh, avoiding injury. And as it turns out, even when they are relatively healthy, as they both have been, you know, you're, you're also not getting top of the rotation production from either of them. Sometimes you are, but you haven't really been so far. And so the Braves are now in that exact same position as they were last year, where they just don't have enough pitching and they're just scrambling to find replacements. And the, I, the you know, thing is just perfect because he seemed like, you know, the, like you said, one of the few bright spots. Oh, man, a, a homegrown pitcher who's actually, you know, this guy we really expected, I assume most Braves fans and the Braves in general probably expected close to nothing out of Waskar Enoa this year, aside from maybe some spot starts and some long relief work. And then, of course, he sabotages it by breaking his own hand, by punching a door or a wall or whatever it happened to be. Like, that that pretty well sums up the Braves' season. Even when things are going right, they find a way to go wrong. And, I, I mean, I think Atlanta should be better than this. Certainly they have the pieces to be better than this. But like I, I think you kind of noted, the problem is like other teams also should be better than this, and it's really I feel like the NL East is really going to come down to who can get their shit together most quickly. And given the number of injuries they're dealing with, and the number of slumps, and especially the number of guys who are just being plugged in right now, who really shouldn't be playing on the regular, like William Contreras or Guillermo Heredia, um, or there's way too much like Johan Camargo in, in the Braves monitors right now, like. And you, you know, know, or you're just Arcia coming back up. He's raging. Yeah, or like net. having to having to give starts to like Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone's experienced the pain of dropped calls and internet outages, especially working remotely this last year. So here's the question. If you're the telco company, how do you help create better experiences for customers? Simple. ServiceNow digital workflows can help solve network problems faster and provide real-time status updates so customers aren't left in the dark. That's probably why ServiceNow workflows have helped telco companies see an increase in customer satisfaction. But proactive customer communications only half the battle. With a single view of your back, middle, and front office operations, ServiceNow workflows also eliminate silos, keeping teams more in sync and more productive. With our scalable services, companies assure a better experience for both customers and employees on a single platform, the Now platform. So how do you help provide a better network experience for customers? With ServiceNow for telecommunications to help streamline network operations. Whatever your business is facing, let's workflow it. ServiceNow. I was going to say Kyle Wright, but he's at one star and he's not even on the, he's not even on no. the roster. But that's the, another part um, of it is that like just having him and Bryce Wilson and those guys just not, not become a step up guys when Soroka's gone and when Freed's struggling. And like those kind of guys have been sitting in the pipeline. Like Tucker Davidson's starting tonight. Like we're just throwing some guys out right now. 
yeah, I, I don't even remember him. Like, and you're right, that is a big problem. Is that like, yes, they've had some significant pitching development success with Max Fried and with and with Ian Anderson, who's I, I'm surprised. Actually, I thought he, I thought he was doing worse this year than he actually was. His numbers are actually pretty good, and you know the healthy season or so they've gotten out of Soroka. But where the Braves really do seem to have fallen down is kind of like you notice, know, like there's not there's not really any depth behind those guys. The the the, the, the pitchers they've produced they have they produced some uh, a couple of like frontline guys, but they haven't produced those kind of three to five starters who can just fill in in a pinch and just give you five or six useful innings. Instead, it's been Bryce Wilson and Kyle Wright and and the the much aborted Sean Newcomb uh, relief or starter uh, attempt that you know has long since been abandoned. You know, and then the other problem is, too, obviously, the more of those arms you need to start, you know, contributing to the rotation or picking up more innings, the more relievers you need to go through. And the more relievers you need to go through, you have to deal with, you know, you know, you're putting guys on the roster who are just not major league caliber. You're 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 turning to guys like Jacob Webb or you're turning to guys like Edgar Santana or you're turning to guys like uh, well, Sean Newcomb is major league ready, but there's a he's walked eight guys in nine and two thirds but he's also struck out 18 which is kind of crazy regardless like you know you're, you're having to use jesse biddle or grant yeah. dayton or you know and that and that just adds up over time because you know you, at some point you run out of reliable arms and i think that's where the braves are and i think they're definitely in a position where it's like one more injury probably is going to be have like a catastrophic cascading effect because they really already couldn't afford to lose you know with the rotation the way it is and one more guy on top of that i don't know what they do and then I think we're back to the exact same thing we debated over like 18 different episodes last summer. Are the Braves going to trade for starting pitching? They're going to have to go up some of these guys. And also just the whole thing, like Riley is hitting well, and I think we have to shout him out that he's turned a <laughs> lot of his game around and he's been so much better so late and hopefully that continues. But this was always the thing with, uh, we'll get into this at Fangraphs, your site that I'm glad this came up was just like your team's prospects are probably not going to work out. And this is something mm. that's really tough for Braves fans. And this is something that the front office loves to sell, like across baseball specifically, is they love how their pipeline looks on baseball perspectives. They love getting that kind of love of like Keith Law being like, this is a premier pipeline, this guy, this guy, this guy. Because before they touch the major leagues, everything's perfect. Like when they are in the pipeline, it looks so nice. And now we see Pache, we see Riley, we see Dansby, we see... Kyle Wright, we see Bryce Wilson, uh, Colby Allard obviously moved on. Like you look through it, and it's like, yeah, that's a lot of misses, mostly misses. And yeah, and, and I imagine that's true for most teams. Right. Most teams in their player development, aside from like the Dodgers and occasionally the Rays, most teams miss on this stuff because it's really hard. It's really hard to be a major league player, and it's really hard to know what your which one of your prospects is going to succeed in major league baseball until they actually you know do it. And I think certainly there are guys like Acuna where it's like you're not particularly scared because everything they've shown at every level, especially the the talent they've shown and the physical ability they've shown, makes you feel good that it's like, okay, no, this guy's going to be fine. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's so hyper-talented that something terrible would have to happen. But then again, you could probably have said the same thing about Dansby Swanson. The guy's a number one pick. He was yeah. the best player in college. He was one of the best players in college baseball when he got drafted. You know, he was uh, a great player in high school, too. And yet here he is with a 66 OPS plus and 51 strikeouts and 167 plate appearances and just, you know, only and being, he's been caught two out of four stolen base attempts like he's and I, I wrote about this a little because I, I did um, I did some of the Braves capsules for, for this year's uh, BP annual. And the thing I noted with Swanson was there's a like this was going to be kind of a make or break year for him because either he was going to take that next step that last year seemed to promise 
or he was going to fall backwards because a lot of what he succeeded with last year felt like it was kind of built on air or it was not the most sustainable. You know, a lot of it was just uh, some good luck on balls and play and also some, you know, and there was other stuff. There's like still a big strikeout rate, a big swing and miss rate, still a lot of struggles with off speed and breaking pitches. And maybe at the end of the day, you know, Dancy Swanson's 27 years old now. He's been in the majors for going on five seasons. Maybe this is just who he is. And I think that's also why you see a lot of teams when they do get those good farm systems. You know, certainly there's that reliance on, oh, let's uh, sorry. This is season number six now for Dansby Swanson, Um, although his first season was only 38 games. So I don't know how much that really counts. But regardless, you know, that's why I that's why I kind of tended to to appreciate the way for as much as Dan or Dave Dombrowski gets crap for, you know, with the Tigers and then again with the Red Sox for trading away prospects in order to build a contender. That's what you're supposed to do with prospects. You either promote them or you trade them because not all of them are going to pan out. And obviously it's it's not it's not as simple as saying, okay, well, I know this one's going to work and I know this one's not and I'll just trade the one that doesn't. But you can't just rely on your farm system indefinitely because not all of these guys are going to work. And there is obviously the value to, hey, yes, I might be able to get useful production out of, say, Bryce Wilson. Or I could swap that for one to two years of far closer to guaranteed production out of insert number two starter here in whom for whom Bryce Wilson would be a part of the trade package. And and I do think you're right that there's there's been, I think, a tendency in Atlanta to hug prospects that they haven't really moved moved any of those guys. And I think some of that's just you want to see how that kind of because I think that core all just kind of came up together. Acuna and Anderson, Freed and Soroka, they all they all showed up at the same time. And so, you know, you want to see, OK, who works, who doesn't. But now you're obviously you're in that position. Where it's like, well, what value does Bryce Wilson really have now? You know, like he's not a bad pitcher. Certainly, I don't think there's any front office in Major League Baseball that's looking at him going, oh, well, he's a total bust. But his value has been dinged by the fact that his major league career has been pretty weak. Sean Newcomb has no real trade value, I imagine. Kyle Wright has no real trade value, I imagine. Um, You know, a guy like, I'm sure Pache would have enormous trade value if you put him out on the market. But, you know, a guy, I mean, I don't think a guy like Dancy Swanson also is going to be traded. But now you're also, you know, now you have to wonder. It's like, okay, like, at a certain point, when does... When does when do the results matter more than, I guess, the process, you know, because the Braves use this process to get as far as they did last year. And they were one win shy of the pennant. And I imagine for a lot of folks in that Atlanta front office, that's a, a, a confirmation that we're working the right way. And we just had some bad luck for three straight games. But at the same time, like you can't just rely on, OK, well, it's going to be better. And we have the process. You can't count on that either. And I think at some point the Braves are just going to have to make that move of, hey, if we want to win with this roster, we are going to have to sacrifice some of these young pieces for something that helps us right now. And what that is going to be is probably going to be either uh, rotation help or help in the outfield or something else entirely. And, and maybe even uh, catcher help, depending on how Darno progresses. But uh, I have to imagine getting a, a decent catcher is going to be kind of hard. Again, because a lot of the teams that are struggling and that would be sellers... I mean, maybe if like Washington wants to give up on on Jan Gomes or or if the Orioles want to move on from Pedro Severino. But, you know, there's not really a whole lot else out there catcher wise that you can kind of land on. Are you at all worried about the the Dodger body count piling up headline by Corey Seager? I'm worried about it only insofar as there are only so many of those injuries one team can realistically take. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Dodgers depth which has been impressive, is really being exposed by now. Because, I mean, you guys, you have guys like Luke Rayleigh and DJ Peters and the corpse of Albert Pujols, which I'm, wow, is that weird, taking at-bats right now because they're down Seager, they're down Pollock, they're down Bellinger, they're down 
Uh, and not only that, but they're down useful bench guys too, like McKinstry and Rios. And that I think that's been the, the big difference for the Dodgers in the past is that when they have had guys get hurt, they have uh, major league caliber bench players like Rios and uh, somehow McKinstry and Pollock ready to go. But this time around, you're like noisy Peters, Rayleigh. These are all these are all rookies. These are all guys, or if not rookies, I mean these are guys who barely have any major league playing time, or they're guys like Matt Beatty who really haven't played much in the past because there's really been no use for them. They've been the very end of the bench. So I worry for LA, and 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 that's not even getting into things like Dustin May's injury or losing Corey Nabel or still not having Bruce Dargraderall. And they've survived because the top end, the top end Dodgers talent, the Dodgers top end talent is so good and so like useful that you know they they can still keep themselves afloat. But I do definitely think they're reaching a breaking point. Uh, the good thing is for them is that the Padres are also having their own injury issues, so they haven't really been able to open up a gap. And even with the Giants playing as well as they have, and I got to say the Giants look increasingly legit and I, I really would like to would be interested in digging more into them now that we're getting onto Memorial Day and they're still you know. Not just hanging around, they're in first place. But that's still only a gap of two games, and I still do think a healthy Dodgers team has no real problem eliminating that deficit. I mean, if you look at the playoff odds, the per, per us, if they're, the Dodgers are still 96% to make the playoffs, and they still have the best odds to win the division at 55%. And that's you know two games behind the, Do- two games behind the Giants um, with all the injuries they're dealing with. So I don't, I don't think the Dodgers are in any position to worry. I think that they're, they're a team that is probably built better than anyone else to weather a long season with injuries. The only problem they theoretically run into is if, A, the Giants are more real than they look, and all of a sudden you have an actual three-way battle in the NL West. And then on top of that, B, if the Padres get healthy first and maybe start pulling away because they, I mean, as much as the Dodgers, they have the talent really to run away with the division no matter how competitive it is. What more can we say about the other LA superstar, Shohei Otani? What can we, what more can know, we say that, right now? What he what can't he do? Do you see the home run he hit the other night? A ninety-four mile an hour fastball up by his arms, <laughs> and he pulled it. That that home run in Fenway that was a bailout swing opposite field popped up over the monster. That's insane. Like I, I saw, uh, I forget which Red Sox player it was. It might have been Matt Barnes who who gave up the the uh, game losing home run to him on Sunday, which is just a normal legit home run. And I think it was, I forget it was Barnes, but I think it was Barnes saying, like, he's the most physically talented game player in the game. And I don't really think there's any question about that at this point. Who else can do what he can do? He's a freak. He's an absolute genetic freak. No one should be able to throw 100 miles an hour as a pitcher and also hit 450-foot home runs as easily as he does. It makes no sense. And... The interesting thing I think that there's gonna that's gonna happen with Otani beyond obviously whatever he does is the further we get into the season, what the MVP conversation around him looks like. Because for as much as I I'd follow the general rule that Mike Trout is the American League MVP every single season until he until he or someone else proves otherwise. And I think Trout is obviously you know if not the favorite at the very least top three in the conversation because he's had yet another fantastic season. But what Otani has done as a true, actual two-way player is remarkable. We've, we haven't seen anyone do this in 100 years. And the last time he, the last time someone did it was Babe Ruth. Like, how do you not make that the MVP if Otani finishes with essentially Giancarlo Stanton's offensive numbers and Max Scherzer's numbers on the mound? Like, I, 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 and the, the truth is that conversation that's going to be spawned is going to be even more ridiculous and awful 
because the Angels are terrible. <laughs> They're a bad baseball team. Again, somehow, <laughs> despite having two of the best players literally on the face of the earth. Not only are they four games under 500, they're even worse than that by their Pythagorean record. And if you look at their lineup, what they're doing, there's not any real reason to believe that this is a fluke. Like, guys like David Fletcher and Jose Iglesias and Taylor Ward not hitting, that makes sense. Those guys aren't supposed to hit. Like, yeah, Anthony Rendon should be hitting better than he is. Ideally, Justin Upton should be hitting better than he is. But, like, what else is... Like, Dylan Bundy should be pitching better than he is. But aside from that, what are you, what are you really expecting? You know, what, what What were you thinking you were going to get out of Jose Quintana after his last few years? What did you expect with a bullpen where you're giving a lot of innings to Steve Ciszek and Alex Claudio? This is just a depressing version of the Brewers, ultimately. And, man, I, so that that's going to be a, a really awful part of the MVP conversation is how can Otani be the MVP if his team is as trash as it is? And I do think there's going to be a lot of questions as to who's the who's the MVP just of that team you know how can you have how can you know between Trout and Otani how do you decide but yeah man I, I what more could it what more could Shohei Otani be doing though he's worth he's been worth two and a half wins of overplacement by baseball reference two and a half wins in 38 games that's absolutely stupid that's a 10 that's a 10 and a half win season is that good it's not bad. <laughs> it's it's trout. It's trout at his peak. It's a trout season. Major League Baseball's got to intervene. We got to get Trout and Otani out of there. We we just got to do something. Well, Trout We're... already made his decision that that's where he wants to be, and oh, what can you really do about that? But like, yeah, it's it's just a dep- it's depressing to see a franchise consistently waste. It was bad enough when they were wasting the talent of the greatest player any of us have ever seen in our lives. Now they're wasting the talent of somehow an even better player with that great player already there. And boy, that is just hard to, to understand. Fantastic work all around. Artie Moreno, owner of the year. Um, Richard Rodriguez. There's a good piece in beyondtheboxscore.com, their website that I very much enjoy reading every day, um, about him thriving. It's a positive pirate segment on this podcast, John. Wow. What, what, do, you, what do you make of uh, Mr. Rodriguez and uh, the way he's changed his approach and uh, thriving thus far on a very uh, untenable situation in Pittsburgh. So I, I hadn't really looked into Richard Rodriguez, excuse me, much this year because I haven't really paid much attention to the Pirates because, quite honestly, they haven't given me a reason to pay attention. Uh, being in last place in the NL in the b- most boring division in baseball, we'll do that. But when I looked up Rodriguez, I was fascinated. The dude throws a fastball 90% of the time. It's 93 miles an hour, so there's nothing special about it, it's just a, or at least velocity-wise, it's just a fastball. His strikeout rate has gone down from last year and is below league average at this point. But he's succeeding because he has yet to give up a home run, and he stopped walking guys. All while throwing his fastball all of the time. And you don't really there, – there's so many parts that you don't really see anymore. The first is just throwing the fastball all the time. There are, there are not that many guys out there at this point who throw fastballs 90% of the time unless it's some like Jordan Hicks level like 102 mile an hour cutter or something or unless it's just a, a, a hyper powerful like – I know like Enoa basically only had two pitches, a fastball and a slider. But he's still even throwing the slider a decent what? Third to, to, to anywhere from a third to half the time, right? Something around there. But 
what I find super interesting about Rory is not just, you know, he's just throwing up the same fastball over and over and over again. He's just beating dudes straight up with it because you look at his, you look especially at the stack cast stuff. He has a barrel rate of 2%, which is wild. An expected batting average of 156. An expected WOBA of 194. You know, he's, he's cut his hard hit rate by 14 points from last year. And he's getting a ton of infield fly balls. And he's getting a ton of pop-ups. He's just getting a lot of weak contact. And part of that is just because his slider, or his slider, sorry, his fastball just moves so much, especially horizontally. I imagine what it's doing is he's just getting in on hitters' hands and just jamming them with location. And if you can do that, great. You know, he has a just super high break, uh, high break fastball. But, and I guess spin-wise, it's fine, I think. It's a 2,600 spin. Yeah, 2,600 RPM, which is fine. Um, yeah, it's it's just really interesting to watch because there's just, again, there's nothing special, like, velocity-wise. There's nothing, you know, there, there's nothing that would, yeah, it has a lot of spin and a lot of movement. And, but yeah, just seeing a guy just go just basically pure fastball nowadays when everyone is trying to work in as many breaking pitches or as many off-speed pitches as they can is is really something. It is. And hey, the little things in Pittsburgh, the little things. Um, your site, Fangraphs.com, um, had a community post on uh, your team's prospects are probably not going to work out with a lot of cool graphs outlining just uh, basically if you're not a... You're not number one through like three in the pipeline. It's probably not going to work out. But when you go through it, it's like most just don't work out. It's amazing just how many don't. And they did uh, based on uh, war for all the different organizations. And you look at the charts and you look at what works and what doesn't. But it's uh, not when you come away going, great, bet all on the prospect. It's also just like why rebuilds like Philadelphia and Baltimore and just different uh, organizations like how Chicago almost came into this situation Cincinnati where it's like oh when you do it primarily based on this it tends not to go well right yeah and I mean like I said before the hard part is you know yes you want as many good young cheap players as you can and you want them in the in the prime of their careers and you want them producing for the major league minimum but you also have to accept that like the best, the most consistent production, maybe not the best, but the most consistent generally comes from guys who are already established in the league and who are going to cost you prospects and a little more money if you want to get them. And so I would think any team that just relies purely on what the farm system is creating is just never really going to get anywhere because your farm system can't do everything. Especially because, as we noted, like it's hard to develop a major league player and there's no guarantee that the prospects you produce, even if they're the best prospects on earth, are going to turn into, are going to turn into stars. You know, you have to involve free agency and you have to be willing to make trades. So, I mean, I, I can't say that's necessarily the problem. And like Philadelphia's rebuild just seems to be a lot of it that they just picked the wrong person to helmet and Matt Klintak. And he just made a lot of really bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, like you look back at those Phillies drafts well, that like, he was in charge. I, I don't know. I think it's a little early. I'm Mickey White. Moniak. I think he'll, I think we need to. But the thing with, the thing with Moniak is people, no one, re- I don't know if many people liked that pick at the time. I know yeah. it was, it was considered to be uh, a weak draft. I think if you look back at it now. Uh, what what which year was that? Twenty the twenty sixteen MLB draft. You know, if you look back on it now and look at the guys who were taken uh, following him in the first round, and you kind of think to yourself, okay, you know, if the Phillies could do this all over again, who would they have taken? I, I guess Anderson, but there was no way a high school pitcher from the Northeast was going to go with the number one pick. That's just no way that was going to happen. Beyond that, 
I mean, the guys on this list in this first round who've had the most success so far have been uh, Matt Manning, at least prospect-wise. I guess Kyle Lewis, who fell because he tore his ACL that uh, that year in college, and Alex Kirilov, who just got up, and I guess Gavin Lux with the Indian or with the with the Dodgers rather. Even if you go further into the compensatory round, you're really and Will Smith is is I guess the big guy there, the the catcher for the Dodgers. But otherwise, like I, I and I remember, but I remember the thing with Moniak being mostly that you know even if he you know even if you could have made a case for the Braves to take or for the Phillies to take Nick Senzel instead, for example. That Moniac was an underslot number one, so that they could use uh, more money. I think they spent a lot of that money on Kevin Gowdy in the second round to get him out of high school. Um, the problem, I mean, the problem with the with that Phillies draft isn't isn't just Moniac. Is that the guys they drafted after him that they theoretically wanted to spend more money on, in part because they saved money on Moniac, also turned into nothing. And yeah, it's I guess that's the thing when you when you think. Or when you rely so much on the draft or on, on player development or on international signings or just on the farm system in general, yeah, you run into these risks because the, the, none of these guys are guarantees. You know, you really – you do have to complement it with free agents and with trades. And I think that's what you've seen the, the smart teams do. You know, the Dodgers didn't win the World Series just because they had a great farm system. They won the World Series because they used that great farm system to acquire Mookie Betts, you know, and to acquire um, – you know, and everyone else who was a, who was a part of that run who was not originally part of that team. So that's that's a really important part of it, and I'd like to think teams are realizing that more, or at least teams would be more cognizant of that. But you know, the the desire to save money certainly seems to outweigh everything else. Yeah, and hey, you know what I like? I thought it was interesting that um, college position players are the most prevalent lower ranked prospects to accrue ten or more WAR. I thought that was interesting. I, would I mean, it makes sense because if, if you consider that college prospects are, at least when it comes to upside and ceiling, have a much lower one than high school players because you're drafting them older, but they have a higher floor and are more likely to reach the majors sooner and produce at least something. Because, you know, I would imagine it's more busts are high school players, guys who just never reach the majors and never produce anything, but that in terms of draft value, if you draft a college player high, you're you know there's a higher risk that you just end up getting kind of a, a mediocre career as opposed to something truly special because you know you're buying a guy basically a, a, at his peak uh, as a college player and you're buying a guy who doesn't in most cases doesn't have a lot of extra room to grow in terms of either you know I mean obviously there's room to grow but certainly where there's I mean if you talk to any scout certainly there's there's more ceiling with a high school guy and more athletic potential I think than there is with a college player so that that makes sense too. And I think that's also why you don't really see college, like college arms especially, or college bats especially, are not guys that go all too, unless they're just like Alex Bregman level, just like dominated college the entire way through. Um, you know, I think you see teams more willing to make the gamble on high school bats, like you saw with Bobby Witt last year, and like how you might see this year with, you know, depending on who goes number one between uh, Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter, but there's also room for Marcelo Mayer and, and, and Josh Max Lawler. Max Ferguson and Liam Spence. Yeah, there there are a lot of good well, high school I'm players. I'm just all my favorite Tennessee Volunteers right now. Yeah, well, okay, well that's your problem. But <laughs> there are a lot of good there are a lot of good high school hitters out there, and they definitely are going to get more of a more interest out I think out of farm directors and scouts because there is that there's always that potential to dream on them in a way that you can't really with college players. Yeah, John Taylor, thank you as always, sir. My pleasure. Talk to you next Tuesday. Yes.
We're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I'm now joined by someone who covers a just a rambunctious group that's just lighting the AL East on fire. Well, no, they're, they're okay. They're 17 and 23. It's the Baltimore Orioles. Be right writer Rich Dubroff of BaltimoreBaseball.com, a very good Baltimore Orioles website that you should check out if you have not already. Rich, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Chase. Thank you for being here. I love uh, visiting your site. I love checking up with Baltimore baseball. It's one of the the Orioles. It's interesting to me that when I peruse, because so many blogs have just gone by the wayside since I was an undergrad and things I just read, and it just it's it's harder and harder to find the writers that I like. And you're one of them uh, covering the Orioles. But I also just very much enjoy Baltimore baseball and the Orioles coverage. I think the Orioles just across the the landscape have really really strong coverage. Well, they do. And I think part of it is because, uh, you know, there, there aren't a lot of teams in this market. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we have, we have the Orioles and we have the Ravens here. You know, uh, there, is NBA, there is NBA and, uh, and NHL and the, the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals, and they have some followers here, but that's considered a, a separate market. And of course, the uh, Washington football team and the uh, and the Nationals. Uh, but again, that's considered a, a separate market. And and people who uh, there are people who are college sports devotees, but University of Maryland is pretty much a, a tertiary, uh, you know, beat around here. You know, I mean, I know you're in uh, you know you're in Georgia. And uh, those uh, and, you know, you've been in Georgia and you've been in Tennessee and, and those are places where college sports is uh, is really supreme. And, you know, when you have teams that have long histories uh, like the or, you know, like the Orioles, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, then, you know, you have a devoted fan, you have a devoted fan base. And it also helps that. Uh, most of their minor league teams, three of the four minor league teams are right in Maryland, hmm. but people can go see the, uh, you know, the future Orioles in the minor leagues. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that, I think that's one of the reasons. Yeah. And then everybody loves the wire. I think is the other, the other main takeaway there. Um, maybe, <laughs> um, early returns. One of my friends, uh, yes. play, one of my friends played a John on the wire. Really? So that was, uh, that was good. Yeah. What season? What what did he do? I I forgot what season, but he was uh, he he played a he played a John who got beaten up. Oh well, okay, <laughs> maybe not the best. Um, what would you say? Like it was I, why I got uh, HBO. It was why I got HBO, and I still have HBO. Nice, nice. Um, early returns on the seventeen and twenty three Baltimore Orioles for you right now. Well. Right now, I think you know if you extrapolate if you extrapolate the record, uh, they would be in the you know ninety ninety one loss area, and you know seven you know the seventy seventy one victory area, and that would be if they actually have that record through the, the the final three quarters of the season. I would think it would be slightly better than. I was look. I was looking at to start the season. Now, looking at the looking at them to start the season, I thought that this was you know in the ninety five ninety six loss area team. They still may be. It's not. It's not that far off. But what they're doing is the uh, 
you know, their bullpen has been better than expected. Uh, And their starting pitching has been a little better than expected. Hitting has not been, uh, but that seems to be the case around baseball. And I, I think that they're slowly, you know, they're slowly making progress. It's very, very painful uh, for fans to watch teams that are rebuilding because it takes a while. Teams get worse much quicker than they get better. Mm-hmm. You know, the team, the Orioles in September 17, around Labor Day, they were right, you know, right in the playoff hunt. Mm-hmm. And then they collapsed at the end of 17. And then the end, then 18 was a total disaster and they started rebuilding the club. And so you can get, you, you just get so much worse. You get worse so much quicker than you get better. And, and hopefully for the Orioles, you know, once they, once they get a little better, they'll be able to stay competitive for, uh, you know, for several years. I mean, that's obviously the plan, but you know, a lot of clubs, uh, you know, it, it's the plan for a lot of clubs and they, you know, haven't been able to do it, but there have been, you know, some clubs that have been uh, able to stay competitive for an extended period of time and not have to go through such a painful rebuild. Are your readers mostly okay with where the Orioles are at in the rebuild? Or are they getting pretty anxious and nervous about where this is going? Well, they seem to be getting anxious. But, you know, it, it's, an, it's interesting because, the, because you know, the, comment, the people who comment are just a small percentage of those who read. And also, you know, I hear them on, you know, and some of them are, you know, it seems to be divided, but, you know, I hear a lot of people who are, are very, very anxious uh, about the, uh, you know, about the pace of the rebuild. Although, you know, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really surprise me. I, I think had we not had the 2020 and the loss of the minor league season, they might be a little bit ahead of where they are now, because even though obviously everybody had to suffer through uh, no minor league season, a team like the Orioles, where so many of their prospects were young and hadn't had any uh, minor league experience or very little, uh, the, the Orioles suffered more. And so I, I think that you know this shouldn't be you know this shouldn't be surprising. I think they're way ahead of where they were two years ago. I mean, I, I think 2019, if you're talking, you know, May 18th, 2019, the team was basically unwatchable then. And it, it's gotten, you know, it, it's gotten marginally better uh, since then, but there's still a whole lot of holes. Yeah, it it's interesting because especially too, like where they were last year and like there was a little bit of anim- like hope, but it's just tough. The AL East is a tough beast and just dealing with the Red Sox and the Yankees and now just how well the Rays have been run and then the Blue Jays um, expediting their rebuild and really, really going forward with their young stars. Um, it's just going to make things difficult for the Orioles to kind of break through there. Um, what has been your favorite storyline to monitor thus far this season? Okay. I, I think that the, the, the Beck story is obviously the comeback of uh, Trey Mancini from colon cancer he, he had a slow start although he's he's picked up and he's uh, he's doing much better i think he's going to continue to do better his comeback hasn't surprised me at all uh he's a really good guy and he handled the uh he handled this awful situation uh you know gallantly and he's done you know and he's done very well and he's represented the team well 
And, of course, John Means. Not only did John Means pitch a no-hitter uh, 12 days ago, but, you know, Means has pitched, you know, very, very well since September since September last year. And he's had uh, a lot of difficulties, too. He lost his father to pancreatic cancer at age 58 last August. And uh, that, you know, that, that, that hurt him badly, obviously, emotionally. And he had to take time off. And it took him a few weeks to, to get back to where he was. And last year's season was so screwy uh, that he, he couldn't get much of a rhythm. But uh, his last four starts in September were excellent. And his starts so far this year have been really good. The Orioles uh, are trying to pace him. And they've moved him, uh, you know, they, they've moved him in the rotation. Uh, they gave him, you know, extra, they gave him extra time off after the no hitter. And they gave him, you know, extra time off since his start after the no hitter. So he, he pitched last Tuesday night. He pitched a week ago. He'll pitch again, uh, tomorrow night. So means has been great. I think those have been the top two stories. Also Cedric Mullins, who has become, uh, an excellent center fielder, an excellent hitter. Uh, he has a 10-game hitting streak right now. His, uh, he began the year with an 11-game hitting streak. Right now, he has a 10-game hitting streak, and he's managed uh, to uh, to to lose you know to lose ground in his batting average during this 10-game streak because uh, you know he's only had 11 hits during those 10 games, and his average has gone down from 322 to 312, which is pretty interesting. But I, I think those would be the the top stories, and of course. Watching the you know watching the development of the uh, young players on the team and and those in the minor league. So there's there's a lot of interesting things to uh, uh, to monitor here, Chase. If you had to guess, would you would you guess that Mancini and Means are both members of the Baltimore Orioles through this season? Uh yes. Uh, Mancini left than. I would say means is I, I would say means is going to stay around uh, because you know he's he's only going to be in his first year of arbitration next year. The team's going to get better, so I think that they even though yes they could get they could get a lot for him. You're you're always trying to get pitchers like men like uh, like means. So I, I think that means would stay around. Mancini, you know, certainly could be. Uh, you know, certainly could be headed elsewhere. Uh, though I, you know, I hope selfishly that he stays around because I think that he's a a really good guy to to have around, and I think it, it, it's good for the fan base to identify with a you know with, with a a position player. I mean, Means is an excellent pitcher, but he only pitches you know once every five days at best. So you want that position player to sort of be the what they call the face of the franchise. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also, I just feel like uh, the fact that the universal DH is not a thing yet might hurt his chances of, of moving just uh, based on his. No, but I mean, he can play for, you know, he, you know, he can play, uh, you know, he can play first base, but also first basemen aren't necessarily as in demand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I, I think that it would be, it wouldn't be fun to see him traded. Uh, let me let me just put it that way. I'll put my fan I'll put my fan hat on for a moment, which I I generally don't. Uh, okay. I just think that 
No, I mean, I, I just think that he should, it, it would be nice if, it would be nice if he stayed. It would be a good thing. He's gone through so much. He's played so well. He's represented the franchise so well. And, gee, do you have to trade everybody? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, who do you think, when you look at this group right now on this roster, um, and the guys who will get caught up this year, and we'll talk a little more about them in a second, but which young guys right now, young stars, young guys that you have pinpointed that you think will be around still as cornerstone pieces when the Orioles do inevitably turn the corner? Well, I think Austin, I think Austin Hayes uh, in left field. Uh, man, uh, Mullins, you know, Mullins could be. Uh, but I think uh, among position players, that would be about, you know, that, that would be about it. Uh, I think that Anthony Santander, who's still on the injured list right now and hit really well last year, but didn't yeah. hit well this year and then sprained his ankle. He could be, he, he could be headed out at the trading deadline instead of Mancini. If he picked up, you know, if, if, uh, his season picked up, uh, but I think that those two, uh, you know, of the of the position players, you know, of the pitchers they have, well, you know, Means may still be here. Dean Dean Kramer, Bruce Zimmerman, Keegan Aiken, uh, Tanner Scott. They have more, you know, they they have more on the mound who uh, I think could be here when uh, you know when the season when you know when they get good. But that's kind of hard to predict. That's kind of hard to predict. I remember. Um, right before the team got good the last time, you know, 10 years ago, uh, they had a, they had a, a young, a, a pitcher who'd been on, on a, who'd been on the Astros and his name was Matt Albers and the Orioles, you know, let him go. I think it was at the end of 2010 and Albers was still pitching, I think through 2019, you know, I know, but you never would have said, gee, you know, <laughs> which of these guys are still going to be pitching 10 years from now? And this guy ended up having a, a really good career for, with a number of teams. So, yeah, um, there are probably a number of guys who we're overlooking who may end up having, you know, may end up having really good careers if they, you know, if they go elsewhere. So that, that's just the nature of the game. Interesting. Um, the next pipeline guy that uh, Orioles fans should be excited about at the major league level is who? Well, the guy that everybody's excited about is Adley Rutschman. Yeah. Who, who was the overall number one pick at 2019. And so many fans think that he should be in the major leagues now, which is not correct because he's only, uh, he's only played in 48 professional games. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he got a late start in 20,000 2019. He barely, got to uh to low a that year last year he would have played in high a this year he starts in double a and he's done okay uh walked a lot he actually has uh, i think 13 walks and 12 strikeouts right now his batting average isn't really good but his on base percentage is 444 and you know he needs to catch money he needs to catch some of these young guys who are going to be the future orioles pitchers like uh dl hall He's, uh, you know, he's caught him, and that's great. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez, who's at Aberdeen, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, 
he's probably a, a bigger prospect than um, you know DL Hall is. But those three are the top prospects, and then there's a fourth one who's at Delmarva, but I think he's gonna, you know, if he keeps playing as well as he has, he's gonna move along quickly. And that's a shortstop named Gunnar Henderson. So those those are the the four best prospects the Orioles have, none of whom may play for the club this year, but uh, you know, all of whom may be in the major leagues by the end of uh, 2022. We'll see. Uh, you know, their their best their other best position prospect is an outfielder named Ismael Diaz, who's currently on the minor league disabled uh, injured list uh, at Norfolk. And he's had a number, you know, he's had a number of injuries over the years and the Orioles uh, would like to give him a shot, but he, you know, he keeps getting hurt. So he's the, you know, he's the position player who's uh, closest to the majors who, you know, is a, you know, is a top prospect. They have some other pitchers who are, who don't have as high ceilings as uh, Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall. Uh, Michael Bauman, who uh, who had a late start because of a, uh, a forearm injury that he suffered late last season. Uh, Zach Lothar, who briefly pitched uh, for the Orioles this year, and uh, Alexander Wells, another left you know another left hander. So they, the Orioles have a number of na- you know a number of names, but I think that for the moment, I think the the best uh, prospects are you know, on the, on the team and lower in the uh, minor leagues. Interesting. Um, last thing we'll wrap up here, Rich. Um, how do you foresee the rest of this season unfolding for the Orioles? Do they, do they end up at the fifth spot? Is there anything that uh, you're thinking any, like put on your clairvoyant hat? Is there anything that you think pretty strongly about as the season moves along uh, at the moment? I think that, I think that they're going to see a lot of new players. Players will player players. There's a, there'll be a lot of churning. Players will come in and out, especially in the infield, because the infield is where, particularly second base and third base, that they've uh, they've disappointed. And you know, if they can try and pick up, uh, you know, a, a major league veteran who could play second or third, um, you may see, it, especially second base, Michael Franco. Who uh, you know who's had some good numbers in the major leagues has been a dis- you know has been a disappointment. He was four for fifty two until he had a three hit game on Sunday, and uh, Franco has you know ha- has not lived up to the expectations the Orioles had when they signed him as a as a free agent in uh, in March. But you know they're going to have to get better. Uh, you know they're going to have to get better at second and third. If they want to, you know, if they want to start moving up here. All right. Rich, what can we check out from you across BaltimoreBaseball.com this week? Well, uh, BaltimoreBaseball.com has, you know, in-person coverage of, uh, you know, all the games, you know, all the games this week. The Orioles will be uh, home uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday against Tampa Bay in Washington against the Nationals Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And also tonight, uh, Aberdeen will uh, have its home opener. It's uh, the first time that they've been a full season affiliate, and we'll have uh, we'll have coverage from up there as well tonight. So 
lots of uh, lots of information on baltimorebaseball.com. All right. Well, keep up the great work. I'm going to enjoy following along the rest of this season at baltimorebaseball.com. Rich, thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chase. All right, we're back as we continue on this Tuesday edition of the Chase Stones Podcast. I am now joined by Brett Finger. Long time since we last spoke, man. I think it was back in February we were checking in on the Hurricanes and everybody else. Uh, your Hurricanes winning yeah, game yeah. one last night. Yeah. How are you feeling? Uh, after game one, there's a lot to feel good about if you're if you're the Hurricanes. So a very promising start to this to the series, and yeah, it's it's been a while. What were your what were your takeaways um, from last night's win? It was interesting, you know. I, I thought Nashville came out, and and obviously they're they're the fourth seed. They're they're the underdog here, and and they looked hungry off the bat. They were very physical, uh, and they got the first goal in the first period. Uh, Philip Forsberg with had an outstanding move to beat Alex Nedeljkovic. And really, after that is when Carolina kind of, may not woke up, but kind of, you know, stayed within themselves and, and just, they didn't, they didn't get over, overly worried. You know, there's a team that is still young, but has been in the playoffs three straight years. They've, they've been on this stage and, and they responded and, you know, they, they were poised, they were. That you know they look like you know they've done it before and they have, so it was it was a good response after the first goal. Uh, they they got to their game. They got a very quick answer. Um, yeah, it, it was a really just a strong outing from Carolina. Uh, they they really you know they to to an extent they just kind of outclassed Nashville to an extent. Uh, Nashville is going to be a very difficult out. Uh, they're very physical. They're, they they make you work and and Carolina certainly had to work last night but you know once the the third period rolled around Carolina really kind of put them away in that game but you you know Nashville is going to be uh, not very happy about the result of that game and it's going to be a very competitive series. What were you worried about Nashville and the one force matchup for the Canes coming in? I think. UC Soros is a, is a concern always. Uh, he had a great year in net for Nashville. He he's still a pretty young guy. He, you know, really took Pekka Renee's you know place as as the starter there over the past year year and a half, and he had a great regular season. And he's a huge huge reason why the Predators are where they are at right now. And you know, I from from a from a up and down the depth chart kind of view of Nashville. They just aren't really the team that they were a few years ago when they when they made that run. Um, but they're still a dangerous team. They're they're a team that can certainly wear you down with how they play. Uh, they're similar to Carolina in that regard. But yeah, I, I, when you look at UC Soros and and how he can steal a game, and you never know with when you have a really solid goalie in net. And and Soros is, is certainly one of those goalies that can you know, it can make things pretty difficult for you. But Carolina, 
uh, stuck with it in game one, and, and they were able to you know create traffic in front of him, make him move around a lot, and uh, it worked out. Interesting. When you looked across the the different brackets, and this is a weird year, obviously, with uh, the way they're having to do this playoff setup. Um, what intrigued you the most? Was there one first round series that stood out to you the most? That like outside of your team, the Canes, who who were you like? Oh, I I need to watch a lot of the series. Florida Tampa is going to be a great series, and it already has been. Obviously, um, with covering Carolina, I, I've seen a lot of Florida and Tampa this year. Everyone knows how good Tampa is, especially with Kucherov back. He he was an instant impact in Game One. The Florida man, I mean, <laughs> they can play, and and they're they're hungry. They want this really bad. Uh, they they really brought it to Tampa in the final week of the season to get home ice advantage in that series and get the two seed in the Central. Uh, the two really really solid teams and two teams that very easily could have taken Carolina's position as first in the division. I mean, it was very very close between those three clubs and. Uh, it's it's that that series is going to be a, a coin flip for me and it was a 4-4 game late in that third period when Tampa Bay took the lead and, and won 5-4 to that's that might be the best series that that will happen here in this first round uh, uh two different teams and two very different places Florida has not been uh on a run <laughs> in, in a very very long time and they won it this year and and you know, Quenneville behind the bench as their head coach is a very noticeable change in how they've played and, you know, the the confidence that they play with. Uh, they can be anyone on any night. And, and of course, Tampa, the reigning champs, they know what they're doing too. So, uh, for me, that's the best series. Yeah, I am. I'm excited about that one as well. Um, who are your favorites coming out of uh the brackets on both sides uh when it was first announced like where you were at and how it ultimately played out in the regular season who were your favorites is it the lightning number one canes two how how did you do it how what were your top groups of like okay the way this looks for these teams <laughs> this is how it should go yeah um i made a bracket you know you, you mm. gotta make a bracket yeah right on nhl.com uh, i'll 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 read out my bracket here, and I'll, I'll tell you what's going on here. Uh, out, out of the divisions, uh, I have Toronto out of the North. Uh, I think they're just—I think they're just better than everyone else in the in the North. I know Edmonton has Connor McDavid, Leon Drysital, a resurgent year from Mike Smith and Net, but I don't trust them. I, I don't even really trust Toronto, but uh, I think you have to go with Toronto out of the North. The East is interesting. Um, you know, I I took Pittsburgh in that in that series against the Islanders in six, but Islanders had a, a very promising start with that overtime win. We'll see how that goes. I actually have Boston coming out of the East. Uh, I, the way that they played down the stretch, Taylor Hall coming in and, and playing the way he has has been huge. They're tied with the with the Capitals right now in that series one to one. I think there's there's probably four viable picks in that in that Eastern Division. I think that's wide open. I went with Boston uh, in the West. 
uh, it has to be a Vegas, Colorado kind of centric uh, thing there. But Minnesota might surprise everyone there. Um, I definitely feel good about Colorado coming out of uh, of that Western division that they're my pick. And now the Central, again, I, I think there's three viable teams in Carolina, Florida, and Tampa Bay. I actually picked Florida over Tampa Bay in that in that series. I have Carolina coming out of, of the Central. So my final four is Toronto, Colorado, Carolina, Boston. Okay. Okay. I don't hate it. Um, nice scientific picks. Those were very scientific. I could <laughs> I could tell there was there was a lot. The scientific method was in play. Um, your favorite under the radar team though, who most people are not talking about that you. It seems like it might be the Panthers for you. Who who is it for you? It's it's the it's maybe the Panthers. Uh, it's it's either Florida or Minnesota. Minnesota, mm. Minnesota might just might just take out Vegas. Like it, it very well might happen. Um, they're exciting. Man, uh, Minnesota, totally different team than than years past. Kirill Kaprizov is a special player, and and he has really brought an energy to this team that they haven't had. And you know, this is a team that that cannot be slept on. I mean, we saw it in Game One against Vegas. They, I mean, they they took that game in overtime on the road. They're they're going to be a very Difficult out. A lot of the same stuff with Florida, a, a team that really them here in in this kind of position, but they're here and they're they're playing up to the the occasion, right? So I think it's Florida and Minnesota are teams that you have to pay attention to. I think they they're very dangerous and they have a shot of going a long way. Last thing, we'll wrap up here. Um, who figures to have a break breakout? playoff performance who do you think after the playoffs are said and done are like oh this was a coming out party for this player and you can do multiple ones if you have multiple picks for this yeah this is tough um close to home for me uh would be alex nadelkovich for the hurricanes uh rookie goalie had an outstanding rookie year he was on waivers at the beginning of the year i mean he truly came out of nowhere and in, in in a lot of ways uh it was supposed to be james reimer Peter Morazic to start the year and Alex Nedeljkovic after Peter Morazic got hurt early on he came he came in and really from day one he's taken over the net uh, he led the league in goals against average he was top four in the league in uh, sa- goals saved above uh, expectation um, the only guys who beat him out in that category were Mark Andre Fleury Andre Vasilevsky Connor Hellebuck I mean, and he was in really spectacular conversation uh throughout the year um and going into the year i i don't know he certainly wasn't really in the conversation and you know he's an rfa after the year he's a, a good playoff run here from him really solidifies his standing on as being a goalie of the future for this team um so for carolina i think i think that's a big one um Man, outside of that, it, it really depends on on how far teams like Florida and Minnesota go. Um, you know, Jonathan Huberdeau is a guy for Florida. I, I don't think he gets enough credit for for how good he is 
we, the Hurricanes saw it firsthand this past year or this past season. Uh, he he's a dynamic electric forward, and if Florida can make it out of this, what's going to be a bloodbath with Tampa? It it will be because of of how good their top end talent is, and and Jonathan Huberto is certainly in that conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of teams, there's a lot of a lot of guys that have an opportunity. This has been a really weird season, and. You know, I mean, any I I really feel like anything can happen for the most part in in these playoffs, and it's gonna there's going to be a lot of interesting storylines surrounding both these these teams that that maybe you didn't expect to be here, uh, it, but also, um, you know, players that that are under the radar guys that that can that can lead these teams to uh, you know, the promised land. All right. Well, the Anaheim Ducks will not be uh, making a promise land. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, no. No. No um, Ducks. Well, I don't miss watching them at one o'clock in the morning. I, I will say that. Right? <laughs> I, I don't miss them being a part of my life. The uh, in, the Ducks, uh, how you like Hayden Flurry? I mean, the new, that was a new acquisition for 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 them from Carolina for Yanni Hakampa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you like Dallas Eakins? What if we switch Brenda Moore oh. for Eakins? <laughs> a classic one uh, for one coaching swap. What do you say? Who says one no? For one. Um, you know, you're going to have to throw in some more assets. I think I, I'm not sure that, that that's going to get it done. We'll okay. have to discuss. We'll have to negotiate a little bit more on that. Well, you probably should have just adapted when the Thrashers left. I should have just gone to Carolina because <laughs> you basically became Thrashers 2.0. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same general manager. Yeah. Don, Don Waddell. Waddell. Shout out to the yeah. legend. Uh, who yeah, could forget? Sports. Who could forget? What a legend. <laughs> um, all right, Brad. Well, thank you so much for checking back in. I greatly appreciate it. What can we check out from you across canescountry.com or anywhere else this week? Yeah, I mean, first round of the playoffs, Carolina Nashville, we're covering it. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, these are two teams that have gone back and forth uh, in inter-league play with Nashville being in the West for a while. And now they're, you know, the Nashville isn't the same, like kind of fun team that they were a few years ago, but they're certainly still a scrappy bunch. And uh, Carolina has a lot on the plate. You know, this is, this is all eyes on the Stanley cup this year. So really excited to, to, to be following this, this, this journey for them. And we're going to be covering it every step of the way at uh, canescountry.com. All right. Well, thank you as always for the time, sir. Redfinger, thank you and good luck. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.